Well, you know, I must say that uh, I've, I've been walking with the Lord now for just over 21 years, and I, I still have this subtle dream that uh, one day I'll have some sort of an experience or something where the, the fight for holiness will be over. And I'll just sort of have arrived. And I'll, the idea of like having to flee sinful passions and pursue holiness will just sort of become easy. And incidentally, as I was on sabbatical, I, that, that subtle dream was sort of in the back and it kept going, maybe if I just have this nine weeks off and I just lock myself in the basement and write and walk on my new uh, walking treadmill that I set up and something will happen down there and I'll, I'll come back with this wonderful news. I did it. It's kind of just coasting along the rest of the way, but uh, I'm here to tell you it didn't happen. So it's... Uh, Today is just like the rest of them in the last 21 years. It is war. It's battle. Peter, in this letter, uh, we'll be focusing on verses 13 to 17 today, mostly. But if you look at verses 14 to 16 there, uh, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of the former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He is dead set on making sure the church is pursuing godliness, fleeing sinful passions, and pursuing holiness. And actually, in chapter 2, he describes that as war. These passions which wage war against your soul. As, uh, I was you know, watching footage, probably as many of you were, on uh, the uh, Hurricane Ian uh, recently down in Florida, all the destruction that it caused, especially in Florida and the areas just surrounding that, uh, uh, Fort Myers, excuse me. Um, there, was, there was one video, perhaps you saw this, it was a meteorologist who was uh, in the middle of a, the street, I believe his name was Jim, up in uh, Punta Gorda. And uh, he was in the middle of the street and it, it, the eye of the storm is right around the corner. I mean, it's coming in a few minutes, I guess. And so it was, he was just getting blasted by the wind. And he's, he had to kind of really have a good base to him. And he's talking, and this cameraman's over there. The cameraman's hiding behind the, the building, so he's okay. But he's in the middle of the road, and he's talking, and the wind is going crazy. And suddenly, he gets pushed back, and he's keeping his bearings. And then this tree branch comes and hits him. Did you see this? Where he gets hit in the leg and he goes down and he's, gets, he you know, moves his leg, gets, gets set free from the tree branch and he stands up and he's like, well, I, I better get out of here. And he starts moving over and he gets pushed back again and he kind of makes his way over and he finally grabs hold of a, tree, uh, a street sign. And he just stands there for a while. Meanwhile, you look to the right of him and there's a street sign that's totally flattened. So you're like, oh man, hopefully this one holds for a little bit. So he's holding the street sign and the camera guy says, Jim, you all right? He's like, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I just can't stand up. And so he's, he's just standing there. He's like, I, I, hold on, I just need, I just need, I just need to, to, to stand up here. And then finally he was able to jump over behind the, the building where he was away from the wind. And I, I watched that and I thought, man, that, that is what my life feels like when I try to pursue holiness. It's just this constant barrage of life around me that tempts me to, to do the exact opposite. It actually tempts me to give in to sinful passions and to flee holiness, to kind of live life my own way. And it doesn't matter, as, as John Piper says, the pains or the pleasures of the world, they both come at you to distract you. 
Right? The, the pains of the world is sort of obvious, right? It tempts us to, to, to distrust that God is good and why, why follow him if this keeps happening to me? But the pleasures of the world also tempt us to just find our joy and hope in them, just distract us away from God. And I would submit that if you feel the war inside of you, that's actually a good sign. Right? If you don't feel the war, you're, you're probably just being swept away. The war is a good sign. But that question then lingers, where am I going to find power to keep going through the storm, the battle? How am I going to make it to the end? Where am I going to find that kind of power? And that's what I want to look at today. Peter is going to answer that for us. Uh, in, in this text, we'll see how he points us to where we can find power to pursue godliness, in particular fleeing sinful passions and pursuing holiness. Where will that power come from? Before we jump into answering that, I want to hit the pause button there and just talk about uh, one other thing that we, 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 you might hear this language sometimes, gospel-centered or gospel-saturated, just so that we make sure we're all in the, in the same uh, concept here uh, as we just kind of think about that's part of our, our purpose and pursuits as, as a church we want to be gospel-saturated. So this language, gospel-centered, uh, is often used, especially in our Christian world uh, today. Um, oftentimes, it goes really with, with no attached meaning. Uh, sometimes people will use it, and really it just means that, well, we teach the gospel here. Okay. Well, okay, great. Uh, or it might mean that Jesus gets talked about in the sermon or something like that. But when we use gospel-centered, we're meaning something in, in, in particular here. Actually, two things. One would uh, generally be uh, that the gospel or the message of Jesus, the person work of Jesus is the very center piece of Scripture, that all Scripture points to him and flows from his work, right? And so whether we're reading the Old Testament or New Testament, everything's pointing to how God is rebuilding his kingdom through the work of his son, Jesus, right? And everything must point to him at the very center, right, the gospel. Uh, the other way that you would hear it, uh, or that we would mean it, is that the gospel, it might be better to say the gospel empowers, the gospel empowers us for life and godliness, or for life and godliness. So we have uh, our mission statement there, to make maturing followers of Jesus by the power of the gospel. The I-N-G after mature is important, maturing Right? So we're not under any sort of delusion that any of us have, have fully arrived here. The, the, the walk of faith is progressive. Right? As much as we want to just leap over the, the maturing part and just be mature, uh, that's just not going to happen on this side of glory. So it's progressive. Our, our walk of faith is progressive. We're maturing. That happens not simply by taking classes or showing up on Sunday morning or singing songs or something. All that is good, provided it's gospel-focused. It's the gospel that actually matures us. The gospel has that kind of power to come in and change us from the inside out. So it's not that we mature in the faith or we pursue holiness so that you know, we can experience the benefits of the gospel. It's that we focus on the gospel, the benefits of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, that actually changes us to pursue the holiness that which God calls us to, Right? Uh, so if we, we have some slides here, just uh, you might remember if you've ever taken the class Gospel and the Believer, or if you went through the, uh, if, if you were here early January 2021, 20, did a sermon, 
just on that phrase, by the power of the gospel, to, to try to make this clear. Um, we use this diagram. I think this originally comes from Mike Bulmore from uh, Crossway Bristol. Uh, at the very heart there, you see in the very center circle is the gospel heart or the heart of the gospel. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, right? Christ died for our sins and was raised again. That's the very heart of the gospel, the very central act of Christ. He came, lived a perfect life, and he died. He died in the place of sinners, and he rose from the dead. That's the very heart of the gospel. The, the ring outside of that is are the implications of that, right? Christ died in our place for all who place their trust in him. And there's some realities that come from that, right? We have, we have peace with God because of the inner circle, right? Or we, we have been given the Holy Spirit because of the inner circle, the, the very heart of the gospel. Or uh, we've been forgiven of all our sins because Christ died for them. Or we have a God who is for us and not against us because Christ died for us, right? These are all implications of the gospel, that which flows out of the very central act of Christ dying and rising from the dead, all right? So you could call them gospel implications or gospel truths. And then the outer circle, the, the third circle, is the, the gospel behaviors or the gospel commands, commands that line up with one that's being changed by the gospel, right? So, so that we ought to forgive one another, right? Ephesians Chapter 5. And what is he connects it then to a gospel implication? He says, forgive others as you've been forgiven. You see, he works from the outer circle, goes to the inner circle, and how are we forgiven? Because of the very heart of the gospel. So the idea is that these gospel behaviors that we're called to, to not grumble, to not gossip, to... Uh, serve one another. Uh, you could go on and on about these gospel behaviors, but they're, they're meant to be empowered by the inner circles. You see that? And so that's what we mean by gospel-empowered or gospel-centered, which means then we want to be a church that focuses on the actual gospel because it's the gospel that's going to come inside of us and change us from within. If you've ever done like cross-country running or anything like that, you may have, if you've ever seen these little gel packs, you know, like they're, they taste horrible. But they're like these little packs about that big and, uh, you know, that round. So there's this little tube and you just pop off the top, you squeeze it and it's gone. It's just instantly, it's just this gel usually. And it, it doesn't taste good, but for real, when you're running, if you, if you know you got a, a half marathon for the day or something or eight mile run and you, you, got, you got two miles left and you feel like you, you got nothing left. You take one of those, and probably within another 100, 100, 200 yards, all of a sudden you feel like, wow, this feels great. I can go some more. And the gospel has that sort of effect. It's, we're supposed to surround one another as a church and point one another to the gospel and let the gospel come in and change us from within and empower us for the life uh, that, that is before us each week. And that's why we want to be a church then that is saturated with the gospel. I want to read, if you could go to the next slide. This is directly from our... Uh, purpose and pursuits. So our purpose as a church there, to make maturing followers of Jesus by the power of the gospel, we list six pursuits, and you, you know this if you've been through our membership class, uh, six pursuits that we want to focus on that would foster a community of maturing followers of Jesus. One of those being a gospel saturation. We want the gospel to saturate every nook and cranny of 
the flock of God at Crossway. So we're just going to read this pursuit as it's stated, and hopefully now it will make complete sense. The more gospels, the gospel saturates our church, the healthier we will become. We aim to ensure that every person at Crossway has a clear understanding of the gospel and can articulate it. We also strive to see each of us changed by it, by the gospel, day by day. Sometimes that will be dramatically, but mostly a drip-by-drip effect. Furthermore, we desire that each individual increasingly sees how to connect the gospel to every area of life, to make these connections, whether it be related to food, grades, parenting, fighting against sin, money, etc., seeing how the gospel empowers us for the Christian life. We all need the gospel every day, and we desire to be a people that never grow bored with the gospel and set it aside, but that our love and appreciation for the good news excels and moves us to share it with the lost world all around us. For God is on a gospel mission of redemption and renewal, and he intends for this mission to flow through us. So that is what we mean by gospel saturation. This passage in Peter is actually a very nice demonstration for us uh, of what, what does that look like, uh, the gospel to be empower, empowering our Holiness. So uh, we're gonna we focus there first. I was po- trying to point out the outer circle. Peter calls us to flee sinful passions and to pursue holiness. That's the gospel behavior he's calling for. The church, all of us here today, have been given orders. Throughout the week, we should flee sinful passions, and we ought to pursue holiness, because God Himself says, "Be holy as I am holy." Not holy according to your standards, but be holy as God is holy, perfectly holy. So that's what we are to pursue. Of course, we are in the middle of a battle. Where are we going to find power to do that? I think Peter points to at least two gospel implications that will empower us toward that. And that's what I want us to see here this morning as we look at this. I think think Peter directs us to two things in particular, to our identity, who we now are, because Christ died for us, and our inheritance, where we are headed. So let's take a look at those in turn. Uh, if you look now, we're back in First Peter. Look at how verse 14 starts as he gives us this command to pursue holiness. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You see that? First he, first he defines who he's talking about. As obedient children of God, then he gives the command, and look at how he wraps it back up in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, the time of your exile. Notice what he's doing there then. He's couching or sandwiching the very command to flee sinful passions, pursue holiness with this, this language of your, your children of God. And you know God is Father, the very one, the eternal God who judges impartially. You call him Father. So he's trying to focus on our identity. Now there's really two aspects of this. Uh, One is more this relational aspect. Like we have, we know the living God and call him Father. And we're supposed to think of him as a loving, compassionate, merciful, gentle strong, caring father. This is, this is the relational aspect that it's actually meant to, 
to shape us and empower us towards the commands. Uh, the reality is, though, sometimes we view God as a strict, harsh father. Right? And some of you maybe even come out of homes like that before. Or maybe are in one right now. Or have watched one happen where you have this father that's just very harsh and just kind of waiting around the corner. Anytime something goes wrong, it's whack. And even if it's not a, a physical whack, it's just this, this treatment of the child. And you start to watch that child um, not feel safe and really start to want to rebel against the father, right? I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to obey you because you're harsh and you're, you can't, I can't please you, right? And so the, the child's heart actually starts to move away from the father. But when we think of God as father, as a perfect loving father, it's actually draw, supposed to draw us towards him. Because think, if you can, of a child that's being raised by a loving father that just truly adores their child, gives them good commands, right? If a father loves their child, they will give commands to the child. They will be protective. They will be clear. The child won't always like them, right? Because the child is a sinner too, right? The child will re- want to do their own way. But those, those commands are meant to be good for the child. And if the, when the child could recognize that, eventually, Lord willing, what you would want to see them do is to start saying, you know what? I'm going to trust my father on this one rather than my own impulse, right? Because children will still have the impulse to, to follow their own way, but if they can start to see, oh, no, wait, my father loves me. He cares for me. I don't understand why he's telling me to do that, but I'm going to trust him. And you see, if we can actually start to view God like that, uh, when our impulses tell us to, to do what we want that makes us feel good, uh, let's gossip about our, co- uh, our boss or our coworker because that will make me feel good. I didn't like the way they treated me. And yet God tells us to refrain from that. We, I can go, okay, God, God must have good things for me in this, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to accept that mistreatment of them because God is good. I, I can trust him. It's this idea of this relational impact that can actually help us. Or just think of how the ways that you fear man. Just think, just think of like a, a small group or something or just a group of people talking. You, there's typically two types of people in there, right? There are some people that hardly say anything. There's two people who do all the talking, right? And both of them can be uh, stirred up because they're afraid of what people think of them. Right? You might be the person in the group that sits and doesn't say anything. Why? Because you're afraid if you say something stupid, foolish. What are they going to think of me? Right? You're afraid. You, you, you fear the opinion of other people. So you'll actually withhold speaking because it, rather than bless the, cro- the group, you're going to keep it to yourself because you're afraid of looking foolish. Meanwhile, there's other, others of us who probably, I put myself more in this category. I think you should think really highly of me. And the way it's going to happen is because I'm going to say something really brilliant. So I'm going to just keep talking until you just all like nod and say, yes, that guy's amazing. Right? So, so some of us, we fear the opinion of other people, so we speak too much. Because I want you to think good of me. And so we just keep entering into the conversation. Rather sitting back and allowing other people's opinions, or rather than trying to one-up people, you just let them, let, give them the floor and listen and serve them that way. Because we want to build up our reputation. Both of them are approach, can be approaching that by the fear of man. But what if 
What if we didn't have to live for the, but for the opinion of other people? Wouldn't that be freeing? I mean, living for the opinion of other people is enslaving. It will make us do and not do all sorts of things. But if we could, if we could realize that the, the greatest one in all the universe, God Almighty, is crazy about us, like a loving father for his kids, why do we need the opinion of other people so much? That would bring us into freedom. And you, so you see, this, the idea of God being father is actually meant to give us power to flee sinful passions for the opinion of other people and to pursue holiness, right? So that's the first aspect of this, this uh, child of God is this relational aspect. But there's, a, there's another aspect that uh, we don't always think about. First John really brings this out. If, if you were here when we went through First John, this, this is more like, sort of like you might say it's the genetics of being a child of God. First John uses that language of the seed of God going in you. You're, you're, you're then born of God, and then as, as the child of God, you begin to, to uh, emulate the aspects of God. Right? So you're, you're, you're demonstrating that you have the very same genetic code. You know, I, I've got two daughters. One of them is, I mean, not like me that much, more like her mother. And one of them, even though she's female, you come to our home and hang out for a while, you'll be like, Dude, she's just like Dan. Both physically and certain parts, if you kind of cover my bald head and her hair, head full of hair, right? You just cover that up and just look at certain parts of her face. You go, man, that's the same look right there. There's this, just this genetic code that gets passed on. Or other parts of our, our we got a toe that's like, who, who's got toes, a toe like that? Well, we do, right? <laughs> or personality-wise, uh, the personality that I have somehow gets input into her and it just sort of comes out. It's this this is child like childlike dad idea. Right? It's this genetic code that gets passed on. And when we think of being God being our father, we're children of God. That's part of the aspect is that we we've been made born of not of man, but we're born of God and we start to actually demonstrate the qualities of God. That starts to come out of us. Because we've been made new. We're, we're no longer the same people. We're the same on the outside, but we're diff- different on the inside. So one, one way I've thought about this is, uh, let's, say, let's say that you, you bought uh, uh, an old arcade game, right? The ones that stand up, right? And uh, it was, you know, I, I went there. It was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle game. You know, for those of you who remember the, that one, that was a good one back in my day. And I came over to your place, and I was like, hey, Let's play that game on there. Let's, let's play Mike Tyson Punch-Out, or Marble Madness, or Off-Road, or Qbert. Right? Some of you guys remember some of these games here. And you looked at me and were like, Dan, it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I can't, we can't play Mike Tyson Punch-Out on here. Right? I would be giving you a command or a request that you just simply can't fulfill because the inner guts of this game doesn't have Mike Tyson Punch-Out doesn't have Qbert. It has Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But let's say you did what uh, I'm going to my in-laws today, and my brother-in-law has actually done this, so he has this old arcade game. He took out the inner guts, and he bought this system that has virtually every game ever made, and he put that inside this. So on the outside, it looks the exact same. But the inside, I can go and say, hey, put in Mike Tyson punch out. Okay, boom. No, put in off-road. Okay, boom. You can put in virtually any game there is. 
because the inner parts have been totally changed. And at that moment, I'm giving a command or I'm giving a request that actually can be fulfilled because the insides are different. Outside's the exact same. Nothing's changed. I came to faith when I was 23, 21 years ago. I look mostly the same. Somebody was laughing. You don't think so? <laughs> my wife, it was my wife laughing. Wow. <laughs> well, then. On the outside, I, I, some parts of me look the same, let's say. But the inside, I've been radically, totally changed. I've been made new. The way that, that God talks about this is the new covenant. The, the heart of stone has been ripped out. And God's put in a heart of flesh. And he's putting the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Why? To empower us to walk in the commands of God. That's, that's right out of the new covenant. God has recreated us, made us new. We are the children of God. We have the very, the very aspect of God, the, the, the qualities of God, the genetics of God to, to come within us and change us from the outside. Which means, brothers and sisters, as you face the call of God this week and it feels like you have nothing in you, that you don't have the qualities, part of what it is is to come back and say, hold on a second, that's, that's not God talking. That's, that's me talking. That's my flesh talking. The question, the, one of the great questions we have to ask is, are we going to trust God of who he says he's made us now and take a step of faith and trust that God, God will empower us to pursue the holiness, that which he calls us to, because he's made us new on the inside. So when God calls you to forgive someone, and it feels like I can't forgive, well, we should ask ourselves a question. Has God changed us or not? Right? It, it, and we, then we come back into the heart of the gospel. Yes, God has changed us because Christ died for our sins. He's forgiven us and made us new. He's made us into children. And we have the very qualities of God in that sense. And we're growing. It's going to be hard. But we actually can pursue that. Or when God calls us to, no, 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 don't, don't look at that. Don't, don't, don't indulge in that right now. That, that's, you're wanting to do something that God is calling you to flee. And everything in you says, no, I just have to. I have to have this urge now. We come back and say, hold on. God has changed me from within. I know my flesh tells me I need that, but this, that, that's not God talking. That's, that's, that's my flesh talking. And we want to come back to who am I really on the inside. And so that's, that's the aspect of more of this genetic uh, transformation that God has given us because we are children of God. So that's the first thing that Peter tries to draw attention to. Pursue holiness. Flee sinful passions. Pursue holiness. Why? Because God has changed you. Not so that you become children of God, but because you are children of God. You have been made new, and so now walk in it. Right? Now the second aspect, he's, he points us to our inheritance. And this is actually the very first command in the book, verse 13. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So notice what he's doing here. He's saying uh, to hope in the grace that will be brought to you. He's pointing to a grace that's, that's future for us. So he's not, he's not pointing to set your mind fully on the grace that was brought to you. 
when you came to faith or at the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, those are, those are true, and we should think about that. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's not talking about setting your hope on the grace that is here right now for you, which is true. And there's other scriptures that talk about that. What, what he's talking about in particular is the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So then what's that? What is the grace he's talking about there? Well, he actually talks about it earlier in the chapter, which is why uh, Jess thankfully read that whole section. If you, if you go back to verse 3, he, he, he launches into this right out of the gates in his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. There it is. To an inheritance that is, then he describes it, it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So notice how he describes this inheritance. Three ways uh, that nothing in this world can be described as. The inheritance that is kept in heaven for you is imperishable, it's unfading, and it's undefiled. Everything you see today, every person you talk to, every building you see, Every animal, every speck of this creation is perishing. So he's, he's really calling up something that is nothing like you'll ever experience on this world. Can you find a place on this earth, on this earth that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled? There's not. He's talking about a whole new land. And brother, sister, God calls you, or tells you, there, there is an inheritance waiting for you that will never fade. There's no blemishes on it. There is a land where children will not be left without a parent. There, there's a land where a spouse will no longer speak harshly to someone. There is a land where, where no murderous thug is going to get away with it anymore. There's a land where our bodies won't be broken. Physically, mentally, we'll be made whole. There's a land where there's not going to be some disaster, hurricane, whatever it is, tornado that just kind of rips the livelihood of everyone right, right away. There's a home, there's a place, a home for you being be built Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I wouldn't tell you that if it's not true, but I come. I will take you there to be with me. A place where there's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. Believer, that's, that's true of you. And I know that there's some of us here today that just feel like we can't see any of it. It's just this fog. Because life has you down. It just keeps beating against you. And God wants us to see there, there is somewhere. This is not home. The reason why it feels like it's not home, it's not safe, it's not comfortable, you don't want to stay here, is because there's an ache for a better land. And I've got that for you. It's your inheritance. It's coming. Not here, but it's coming. And look at what he says here in verse 13. He says, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully there. So it's even this prepare your minds for action. It's, it's, it's really the, the, the language is gird your loins. 
uh, gird the loins of your mind. That you know, in the ancient days, they would have like these outer garments that was more like look more like a dress. Well, like kind of running and or doing battle with that on is, is hard because you, you can't really move much. So they would pull it up and tie it around their waist. It, that's called girding it up. So he says, gird up around your loins, the, the loins of your mind, though, that, and put all your chips on the table, all your hopes, all your dreams, there, and lay it all, bank on it, and live your life believing that that's true. That's what Peter gets at. And when you do that, now I can give you a command to pursue holiness. Because if you keep that in mind, we can endure all sorts of hardship. Right? The justice that we demand, that we think we need now, says many times it won't come, but justice will come later. Right? So this idea then is, is that as obedient children, we are to set our sights fully on that grace to be brought one day. Uh, one of the things I've, I've occasionally watched on, on uh, the old YouTube is that uh, you can type in, uh, what would you type in? Maybe say dramatic finishes or finish line, right? And you, well, you'll, you'll find these compilations of, uh, is that the right word, compilations? Compilation? All right. Sometimes you all of a sudden say a word and you have no idea. Did I just say something? Anyhow, you type that in and uh, see how... There is part of me that's still the same. I still have terrible grammar. See? <laughs> Anyhow, so you want to watch dramatic finishes. What, what you'll find is these cross-country runners or marathoners, and they've, just, they've gone through a grueling run. And they get towards the end, and you'll watch them. They'll kind of, some will be staggering. They'll fall over. Sometimes there's some on there where, where people are crawling. Some are just like, like that. The finish line's not far away. And that's actually, it's the finish line that actually keeps them going. If that happened way halfway through the race, they might not make it, but they got, they got their sights. I only have to make it there. And so they just keep hobbling, just little by little. And one of the beautiful things is sometimes somebody, a runner, whether it's on the same team or an opposing team, will come along and they'll pick them up, they'll put their arm around them, and they'll hobble together. And it's just such, I love those ones. And they're just full of emotion. And this one is giving up their, their you know, they could finish faster, but they're saying, no, no, I'm going I'm to help out this person here, and we're going to cross this together. And I like that picture for two reasons. One, it's, it's the finish line that will actually give us power to keep pushing on, right? Uh, just exactly what Peter's getting at. To set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the, revel at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That will give us power to continue to, to uh, delay gratification, right? Flee the sinful passions or pursue holiness. Just keeping our sights there. But then second, these commands, we often hear them as individual commands. This is just for you, believer. You kind of take this how you want or, you know, just how does it apply to you? These are corporate commands. So Peter is commanding the church collectively to be about this. Which means, I, I can guarantee you today that you're... Even within your own row, there's probably some people that are, I feel like, are in the middle of a good run. They have energy. And there's others who are hobbling, who are about to, to run into the railing and need help. And the idea that it, this is just an individual command is nothing what Peter's getting at. Throughout the New Testament, most commands are, are collective. They're groups to the corporate body. 
And we're supposed to be a people that we, we, we got our eyes out. We're gathering with one another. We're asking one another, how can I put your arm around me? Let's run together. And most of what we have to do is be pointing one another to the gospel. Help. Help, 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 allow me to help you remember where we're headed. Let me remind you who you are today. I, I know it's, this is hard. This is a hard time of life. I, I trust the Lord with you. Let, let's think about who God, how God has changed you and where we're headed. It's reminding one another of the gospel, and that's our great task as a church. And so as you're thinking about life this week, as you're, if, if uh, you're meeting with people in small groups or whatever it is, this is what we want to be doing is asking one another, how can I help you to run the race together? And with that, we're going to turn to the Lord's Supper because as Peter goes on, verses 18 to 21, he comes right down to the heart of the gospel. He gives the command. He also gives us the implications of the gospel. But the great question we could be asking is, well, how do I know that's true? How do I, how do I know that I have an inheritance waiting? How do I know that I'm truly a child of God? Well, Peter goes on, verse 18. Knowing... That you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, as great as silver and gold is, but something far more precious, but the precious blood of Christ, like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. Believer, the reason why we can trust that we have an inheritance is because Christ died. The eternal son gave up his life to seal the promise to inaugurate the promise. And that's why we can trust. That's the very heart of the gospel. Christ died to ransom us. Implications are that we are children of God. We have an inheritance waiting for us. Gospel behavior is therefore we ought to and can. Actually this week, pursue holiness, flee sinful passions. So with that, we'll move towards the Lord's Supper. If you're a follower of Christ today, uh, we've been told to partake of the Lord's Supper together as a community. The Lord's table is for people who trust the gospel, who believe that Christ is the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of God, that he died in the place of sinners, and that by trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection, we can be made right with God, who trust that and then seek to live under the, uh, uh, under the authority of Jesus by full obedience to him. Whatever Jesus commands, we say, Okay, Lord, that might not be my opinion right now, but I will obey. Right? That's what Jesus calls us to be. And if that's you, uh, then we are to partake of the Lord's Supper uh, together. If, if that does not characterize you, if you, if you are not uh, walking in repentant faith uh, under Jesus, then we ask that you not partake uh, this morning. But if that's you, we invite you to come. Uh, come to the inner aisles, uh, grab the elements, and then return to your seats, and we will partake together. Brothers and sisters, as we partake this morning, uh, let us be reminded and convinced once again that the promise, the implications of the gospel are true, not because of you and what you've done or how you'll perform this week, but because of the, by the broken body of Jesus. By faith in Christ, in his death, burial, resurrection, you are children of God. You've been made new. Despite what happens this week, the difficulties you face, God has rewired you on the inside and given you the Holy Spirit and power to walk in obedience to him. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, 
do this in remembrance of me. For those of us who are experiencing the joys of this world, which there are many, let us be reminded that this is not home. That's only a foretaste of a place far better. And for those of us who are struggling with the pains of the world, let that ache remind us that yes, indeed, this is as bad as it gets in this, this, this world. We have a better place. For the unbeliever, this is as good as it gets. But for the believer, we're on to a place far, far better. The inheritance is true. It's real. And it's sealed for you by the blood of Christ. For Jesus, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.